Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Thank you, Roger. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com and also in our secret bunkers somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program, produced by one of the world's best-known James Bond fans, Magic Matt Allen. Sean Connery passed away, as you probably heard, but not our fault, 90 years old. He was the first James Bond to wear a hat and have a visible toupee. I'm Burl Bear, that's Mark C.G. Boyer. I hope so. And joining us on the telephone, a man who writes a book about every 15 minutes, <laughs> Alan R. Warren. Alan, how you doing today? You know, I'm just uh, delicious. You're <laughs> delicious. Well, I'm sure we have a variety of Duncan Hines reviews of you that attest to that, but we'll pass on those for now. I always tease Alan that he writes a book every 15 minutes or 15 days because every time I turn around, there's another best-selling book by Alan R. Warren. Uh, do, do you write them all at once? you have like three typewriters and a few word processors all going at once? Or is it just a matter of pure coincidence that your books come out with such rapidity? Well, it's kind of a combination, you know. Um, no, actually, this one took a couple of years. Wow, well, that's more realistic. <laughs> I guess I get kind of jealous of your uh, your output because it takes me like a year or two to write a book. Even when I work with Frank C. Gerardo Jr., as I am on my latest uh, yet unpublished masterpiece, it takes us, you know, about a year to put the whole thing together, especially without ever being in the same room with each other. <laughs> yeah, but that's by request. Yeah, it's by request. Yeah. From, yeah. from Frank. <laughs> from Frank. It's Burl, stay away. No, we talk yeah. on the phone. This particular yeah, book, the latest one, I think it's your latest one. It's hard to tell because they come out so often. Murder Times Six. True story of the Wells Gray Park murders, which didn't actually take place in Wells Gray Park, if I remember correctly. This goes back to about 1982. Why is this case so famous amongst Canadians who by now should be numb to how perverse Canadian murderers are? <laughs> It was one of the worst kill, mass killings they had in Canada, especially in a park. And because it was a family, you know, like two little girls, the parents and the grandparents, I think that kind of uh, uh, shocked a lot of Canadians. Well, yeah, they're going on a nice family outing, barbecues and fun things to do, and they all wind up murdered. And it's a strange yeah. one. I mean, you, you look at yeah. a situation like this, who would kill... Grandma, Grandpa, Mom, Dad, and the kids in one swell foop. One, one swoopy <laughs> swell? One swell foop. Yeah. One fell yeah. swoop. In other words, all at once. What, a, what kind of bizarre motive could a human being have for doing something that strange and in such a family-friendly environment? That probably is what stuns and upsets a lot of people. And I would imagine the, the tourism to that particular area went down in subsequent years people kind of superstitious about it. Am I correct there? Oh, yeah. It almost, it almost, uh, it went to nothing. It was one of the busiest parks in, in Canada, and it, it became uh, a, like nothing. Nobody would go there. So it really hurt its business. Uh, it's more normal now, uh, but back in the 80s, it was pretty much destroyed. Boy, glad I didn't invest in recreational areas in Canada then. 
Yeah. So <laughs> give, uh, give our loyal listeners, and even those that just happen to stumble upon the program, uh, a little bit of the background of the story. How did, it, how did the news break? What was the first things we heard about this? Well, what happened was the family went camping for two weeks, and they didn't come back. And so, of course, the job called and, and uh, different family members, and they couldn't find them. They never returned, so they called the cops. It took a little while, and um, they didn't know what happened to them. And eventually they found the uh, uh, family car, and it was burnt out. Hmm. And um, there were bodies in it, but it was burned so badly they couldn't tell how many bodies at first. Um, so that was kind of the start of it. And so everybody was on edge then, like what, what would happen to this normal family? And they come from a small town. It was like, God, what was there, like uh, 15,000 people in the town, I think, at the time. So yeah, like Milton Freewater, Oregon or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty small, and, and and everybody knew everybody, and so it it was kind of a real shock because things like that never happen. I know when when they first found the uh, the burnt out car and the the bodies inside, they couldn't tell exactly how many. How long had these people been missing before they found this burnt out car? Geez, I think that was about a month, two months maybe. Yeah, because school had started back up. They went missing in August, and school was already started back up and it was kind of uh closer to october the end of september when they when they found it so uh, around a month and um so like i said and at first uh see because what had happened is the family of four the parents and the two girls drove up in their car and they were meeting the grandparents who was coming in a truck and camper with a boat mm. so they found the car but not the trunk truck and camper and because they couldn't identify how many bodies there were total, they thought maybe the grandparents were still alive and missing. Hmm. Now, what what police force jumps in on a case like this? RCMP. So is that that's like the equivalent of a, a national? Yeah. Like an FBI like or an something. FBI. Yeah. Yeah. They deal with all the federal crimes. You know, murder, rape, kidnapping, kidnapping and things. Yeah, all the big stuff. So it's not just like the, the local law enforcement, uh, whatever the nearest little town is. It goes up no, higher than no. that right away. It goes higher. I mean, they use local law enforcement. They'll work together. But, no, it was the RCMP that were running the case. Now, the reason I ask that is just because I don't know. But based <laughs> on experience, small-town police forces, when they have a bizarre case like this, will often come up with explanations or theories that are far more complex and elaborate than real life. And I don't know whether it's because they watch a lot of TV movies or whatever. Yeah, but well, they listen to your show, probably. That must be it. <laughs> Everything's bizarre, right? Uh, where the yeah. uh, national body, like, say, the FBI or the RCMP, tends to be more rational, except in this case. Well, I mean, they, they generally have more experience. I, I, I think in this particular case, they didn't. Uh, most of the officers uh, here hadn't really dealt with anything like this, so this was kind of a, um, a, a new case in a way. Well, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the on-the-farm, you know, the hog farm murder, the guy... Oh, you know, right, yeah. ...where the police said, well, yeah, we, they've even told us who's doing it, but we don't have the resources, we don't have the budget, we don't have the experience... So we're not going to do anything. Which yeah, that, yeah. that was a fascinating explanation for lack of involvement in crime solving. 
But they didn't yeah. have a valid point. They didn't have the trading and they didn't have the manpower or the budget. Yeah. Uh, they did yeah. have telephones. They did have telephones? <clears throat> yes, and they could have picked one up and said, hey, larger enforcement agency, come help us. Well, well, they, no, it was, they were on a party line and it was busy. Yeah, that was a bit it. Jed Clampett was on the other line. <laughs> yeah, that's the piece to give. So when the people go missing and the investigation begins, are they looking for people in the area or are they figuring that it's, you know, hit and run from uh, another planet or something? Well, um, the first thought is it's got to be an American. Oh, of course. Um, Only Americans do this sort of thing. Well, yeah. Um, no, I think the first thought was uh, they, they uh, initially when they went missing, uh, nobody was thinking it would be such a horrifying crime. They were thinking, okay, these people got stuck somewhere, they got lost, uh, something happened, an accident. You know, that was kind of the mindset. So they put people around the parks and they um, kind of were, were looking to trace where they had gone and if they could find their campsite and things like that. And, and talk to different people around the area, you know, the corner store and all that sort of stuff, um, to see if they could find them. Because, it, like I said, they, they were thinking, all oh, these people are just lost or something's gone. Accident, right? And then um, when the bodies came up in the, in the car, then, of course, you know, everybody went, okay, what's going on here? Now, and, when, when um, they find this, the bodies in the car, I mean, right away, if the thing's been set on fire and you got charred corpses in the back seat and the front seat, you know right away there's something wrong. Right? You don't have to be brilliant to figure out that something really strange is going on. But then they opened the trunk. What did they find in the trunk? The, the, the bodies of the two little girls um, they found in the trunk. Um, they could tell because uh, they had to pry the trunk open, and when they did, there was two little skulls, and uh, one was facing outward toward the cop that looked. And the other one was kind of on an angle, but and and the one that was on the angle, they could tell there was a bullet hole in the head. So they knew there was the two little girls in the back, and then they couldn't tell how many bodies, because he had initially piled all four adult bodies in the back seat, laid them on top of each other, and then so when he gassed and burned it, um, it all kind of smushed. Went, yeah, it was all just kind of ash. They couldn't tell. Um, how many there were. So that's why they thought, well, the grandparents are probably still missing uh, because their truck and camper aren't there either. Nor the boat. So, yeah, so they, so they thought, okay, this is the parents and the kids. Something happened here. And so they, they went on the lookout for the uh, grandparents, and they actually um, got a uh, replica truck and camper and boat, and they drove it across the country. And, See, uh, like, have you seen every... one that looks just like this? Was that the strategy? Yeah, yeah, and they would stop in every town, and then they would uh, give out brochures and pictures and talk to people. They were trying to jog the memory of someone seeing that, because at that time, that was a 1981. It was a brand-new truck and camper, so um, they were hoping it would stick out and, and somebody would remember uh, right. seeing it somewhere. But meanwhile, they're going all across the country, when the whole thing happened locally, am I correct? Yeah. Well, the, the problem was they had in from Saskatchewan in the prairies. Um, uh, a waitress had uh, claimed she saw the uh, grandparents' camper, and that two French Canadians uh, were driving it, and they ate in the restaurant, and she served them. 
And um, so they were kind of their mindset was these guys had killed the family and took uh, the camper and were driving back east, and they were from there somewhere. Ah, I uh, got you. So that was kind of their mindset. That's why they had it. And, in fact, when they went and talked to a, a mechanic in, in Ontario, had reported that uh, guys just like this had showed up with a trunk, truck and camper and wanted them to paint the truck a different color for cash. Hmm. And while they were painting the truck... Uh, the guy, um, one of the guys showed the mechanic a uh, rifle, or twenty two, I believe, and wanted to sell it. And he said it was hot, you know, like it was stolen. And so the guy didn't want anything to do with it. And he said, no, you'd have to contact this guy type thing. And he just passed him on. But that mechanic reported it. So the police in their mind were, these are the same guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're trying to get rid of a rifle. They've got a truck and camper. They're painting that. Yeah, that, that clears it up because I kind of wondered why they were looking for these French Canadian guys, probably those two wrestlers, you know. <laughs> <their names. laughs> well, yeah, no. So that it, so the, the, at the uh, the detective branch were were thinking these are the guys, right? You know, they're um, it just sounded like uh, they would fit the description, and everything seemed to work. Um, but they did find the camper burnt out, or not them, but two. Uh, Two forestry workers found it and reported it, and so then then they had to come back and re- they started searching in the area now. Now, with the fact that they were searching for them originally, searching for these two French Canadian guys who do seem highly suspect of doing something wrong. Of course, uh, they speak French. Yeah, <laughs> right away you know there's a problem. The French have a yeah. different word for everything. Oui, oui. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is <laughs> down the hall, uh, but. <laughs> Don't mean to make jokes about this necessarily, but this no. must have impacted the faith in the RCMP by the local residents. There were, there were, you know, there was, uh, you know, I did put that in there. There were some people that were complaining, and there's even a an ex RCMP that said that they weren't doing the job correctly. But I will say, considering the situation, I I, I think they were following the leads. Well, yeah, now that you've explained it a little better, I can understand why they would be focusing on these French-Canadian guys. Did they ever catch them and find out what their crime was? No, they actually, I guess these two guys ended across the border. They went down into Detroit, and there was something to do. That's kind of where it was left off as far as I found out. Um, They knew that they went down to Detroit, and they were doing things, and uh, I think that the one Sergeant Eastham who's in the book that's one of the lead detectives had contacted the detectives in Detroit, and I don't know much further on that, what happened with those guys. Yeah, yeah, because they're mandated, more or less, to go after whoever killed these people, so once they know it's not them, they slide a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what if the, if the cops in Detroit did anything with them or if they did, you know, down the road. I'm not sure. Maybe. You know, they sound like they would be the type type of guys that would get into trouble. Yeah, it does sound like it. Now, yeah. <laughs> when, when they started focusing again on the local area because they found the, the burnt-out camper, et cetera, do they have any preordained, don't mean ministers, but, you know, do they have any... Preordained suspects, people with history of this type of thing? No, not immediately. And in fact, the only reason they caught on to the guy that did it 
was they started canvassing a small town that wasn't too far away from the park called Clearwater. And when they're canvassing that um, door-to-door, they're asking uh, if any people had seen anything, you know, and showing them pictures. And uh, there was one guy that came to the door and his girlfriend, and uh, when he was talking, he was rather abrupt with the cops and didn't want to help them. But the girlfriend said, oh, aren't you going to tell them about David and, and the, the bullet holes in his truck? Ooh. And, of course, the guy said, shut up, and, you know, get out. And so what they did was instead of confronting, they sat back and they just started watching the house. And when the, when the, when the guy left, uh, they went and they talked to the, to the lady in the house. And she told them that this guy named David Sherry had approached her boyfriend and asked him if he could fix a bullet hole in a passenger side of a truck. And as well, that truck was stolen, and he wanted to get the VIN number taken off. And he wanted to know if he knew someone that could do it, and if he could re-register it and insure it after they had done it. Like, he wanted to get all that information. So the cops, that was their first lead to this guy. Now, do they ever find out why this guy was so reticent to tell the cops this information? No, and in fact, he was really, really aggressive. And a part of the story went that um, even when they found out some information from his girlfriend, they needed more, and he wouldn't talk. So they kept him under surveillance, and one night he went out to a bar, got really drunk, and started driving home. So they arrested him, put him in jail, and told him that um, if he would talk and tell them about the story, the, the details, that they uh, would let him go. And so they made some sort of an agreement there, and they, they found out more information about David Shearing, and that's kind of what led them to um, the killer. Hmm. So when they go uh, talk to this David guy, was he surprised that the cops were showing up? Well, they didn't do it like that. Because he, he went way up north. He went to... Uh, a place called Tumblr Ridge, which was like a coal town at the time. And there was a lot of um, construction going on and building uh, for the workers. And it was known as a place you could go if you weren't, let's say a lot of ex-convicts went there, a lot of people with not good work records. Uh, You could get a job there easy, make some money. Mm -hmm. So he had it up there. And so um, when they found out he was there, they contact of the local cops there and so they they sort of um they didn't approach him the way you would think they just sort of kept an eye on him um because they didn't want to startle them they wanted the rcmp to fly up and then you know interrogate him and the whole thing but the the interrogation of this fellow in your book which is called murder time six by the way by alan r warren is fascinating to me they were very clever in their approach to him because they, they didn't come on right away with, gee, we want to talk about maybe you murdered these people. They approached him from a different angle. And what, what did they start off talking to him about? Well, the big thing was he, um, Eastham decided to um, get things that would relate to him. So he talked to him about, you know, God, do you believe in God, and, and about your mother. And he found that um, he was really close to his mother and really thought a lot of her. So I think what they uh, were trying to do was uh, give him kind of a, a friendship, but at the same time make him feel guilty 
you know, so what would your mother think? What, what would, you know, does she believe in God? What does she think if something like this happened? So he, they were trying to kind of guilt him at the same time, and then they were, they didn't bring up that um, crime of the, of the family right away. Well, what um, did they bring? Was there some previous thing that he'd been involved in that they could Yeah, he had, he had um, ran over a guy. Um, uh, it, it, apparently it was some sort of a drug thing that went bad, but we don't know. But he ran over this kid um, about two years before that. Did he kill him? And so, yeah, then he killed him, but nobody knew. And um, they had done research and found out that a lot of people thought knew it was him, but nobody told the cops. It was kind of one of those small town things. Yeah, yeah. So we, did, we didn't he, see nothing. We didn't see nobody. Yeah. <laughs> so they brought that up. And then he was, that relaxed him because he thought, oh, that's why I'm here. Oh, you want to talk about that? And so he had no problem talking about that. And th that was kind of like a, a next step of bringing it in. And then eventually they, they brought up the family of six. And then um, over a period of time, he confessed. Yeah, it seems to me that you know, there's the old adage that cops never ask you a question that they don't know the answer to. But in this situation, from reading the interrogation, they asked him a question they didn't know the answer to, and he did, <laughs> which <laughs> kind of tipped his hand. Well, that too. Uh, you know, it, 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 this David Shearing is not the smartest guy, so, um, you know, it wasn't too hard, and they knew what they were dealing with, and they knew he was involved. Um, they just didn't know the reasoning, like why he did what he did. Did he come up with a reason, real or imaginary? Well, he came up with an imaginary one. He said that he wanted to steal the truck, camper, and boat and a lot of their possessions. Uh, he had run across them at the park camping and uh, came back and decided he wanted to steal everything, and so he just killed them and stole a lot of their property. And so that's kind of what they went with. And the, the police actually, for the most part, believed it, or the prosecutor did, you might say. Yeah. But in reality... There was another motive entirely. Oh, well, it was totally different. Yeah, he, 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 he had run across them, and he spotted the two little girls playing, and in his mind immediately, he knew he wanted to have them. So um, he watched them and found out that, you know, that they belonged to these four adults. So his first thought was, well, I'll have to kill them. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. <clears throat> well, of course. And so he... And he took a couple of days before he actually did it, but then he did come back, killed the adults, and then he took the two little girls uh, with him back to his place, uh, which wasn't too far. It was really a, kind of his father's place who had died that had a ranch there. And so he took them back and he assaulted them. Um, anywhere from a week to two weeks, we kind of don't know the exact timing there on that. Um, it, it kind of varies. So do we know from after the fact, he has these two little girls, one's 13, one's 11, and he's assaulting both of them simultaneously or in round-robin uh, tag team matches or something? Well, you know, there's three stories, and they all come from him, and they've all changed. Um, but I think what, it, what had happened was, because the last story he told was about... Um, um, from when he was a little kid, he used to have really uh, strange fantasies about 
uh, being tied up and having sex and tying up people and having sex. He was into this bondage. But for him, he had it with little girls. He wanted, he would have these fantasies about, you know, 10-year-old girls and stuff. It wasn't adult females or males. So he said that he had them and uh, he couldn't control that urge. And so when he saw these two girls, it was about that and it took control. Um, so, uh, you know, at first he said he didn't assault them in the tent when he killed the parents. But we sort of think he did. And another thing is, too, with the younger one, like he even complained to me about um, she, um, she didn't know how to do anything. Now she's only 11 years old. Well, I, that's what, you know, everybody said when, when, you, when I tell them, or even my thought. And, and so he got so frustrated, um, he said that he sh just shot her in the head. So I think with her, she was only around... A couple of days. Uh, this didn't. It wasn't like the original story where he had it two weeks. I think he shot her out of frustration, probably within two or three days of being back at, at his at his cabin. And then he kept the older one, and he sexually assaulted her. And and there was even um, he, in his mind, at the time, thought that uh, he could end up marrying this thirteen-year-old, and that. He was in love with her, and that they'd have a relationship. And he had carved their names in a heart, uh, like on the wall in the cabin and stuff like that on the wood. So he was, he was really kind of uh, going off with this fantasy. Yeah, and, totally um, delusional. I can't. Oh, yeah, I mean, totally. I cannot imagine how totally traumatized that girl yeah. would be. Her grandparents are murdered. Parents are murdered. Her little sister's murdered. And she's supposed to be madly in love with this guy. He's totally yeah. delusional. Well, yeah, and totally, because there's that one point at the beginning, too, when he went into the campsite, he shot the, the mother and father, but he didn't kill the, the father. He had shot him where it hit him in the neck, and it, it, it put him to the ground, and he was bleeding but still alive. Then he went and killed the grandparents, come back to the tent, and then he assaulted the girls in whatever manner he did. And then when he came out... Uh, with the girls, um, the father was still alive, so he had to finish him off. He shot him in the head on the ground in front of the girls. Oh, you, you cannot tell me. You see, because he makes it sound like the girls really liked him. Oh, yeah, and sure. believed in him, looked up to him, and do anything he said and because they liked him and all this stuff. It's like, no, they're old enough to know what you just did, and what you just did in front of them was atrocious. That's That would be... They, they, those girls would have been in shock completely. Oh, yeah. Plus, well, so so, their self-survival mechanism is going to kick in, too. They don't want to be dead. Their parents have just been murdered. Their grandparents murdered. He, he polishes off the dad right in front of him and then continues to sexually assault them. And yeah. in his mind, they just think he's wonderful. They must have yeah. been horrifyingly traumatized. Yeah. That's probably, and that's the most important thing to think about in the story. And because the reason the story has gone this far is because he's up for parole. Oh, that's right. Canadian laws are a little bit different. Also, well, when yeah. he's sentenced, they don't know about this whole thing with him having sex with these girls. That's his motive. Exactly. So the point is he's not a sexual offender. He hasn't been charged or or, or 
you know, uh, convicted of that, and it all come out after. So he's got six second-degree murder charges on his on his file. But in Canadian law, when you murder six people at once, you can only be sentenced um, with one sentence. Like, you, you can get life six times, but it's all served at the same time. It's not consecutive. Oh, yeah. Here in America, it would be consecutive. He would be sentenced yeah. uh, for life in prison, say, six times. Right. You see, but here, when you do something in one event like that, you serve them all starting at the same time. Um, it's not one after another after another. Now, if he had killed them separately, six different incidents a year apart, then he could get six sentences that would be served apart. So it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, now that law has been changed now, but at the time when he was convicted, that was what the law read. So he gets one life sentence. And the maximum for second degree is a 25-year min, uh, minimum. That's the most they could give him. So how old was he in his 20s at the time they first arrested him? 23. So 25 years later, he's still yeah. a strapping young man in his 50s. Yeah, he's, he's just in, in his early 60s now, and he goes up in June. He's been in for parole once before. Um, everyone's pretty terrified that he'll get it because... Um, uh, he's he's totally changed his life like that that murder the running over the guy before uh, he had drug charges and he also had theft charges he's had everything take expunged from his record because he served his time and it's been good time and um, and so now he's also in a medium my medium mild security prison so he's in a Really lightweight. I've been a model prisoner like Robert Lee Yates uh, in, in Washington yeah. State, the Spokane uh, serial killer. He killed yeah. maybe 25 people, 30 people. Yeah. And yet he's been an absolutely model prisoner. Couldn't ask for yeah. an easier guy to have in a slammer. That's exactly this case, too. Uh, now, the weird thing is, well, I guess not so weird, but what had happened was a, a, a lady had found him online. And now she's married to him. Oh, of course. And she goes in for conjugal visits, and they give him a 72-hour... They have these cabins on the prison property. So he gets to go in this cabin with her for 72 hours, and they get to live a, a, a normal life in the fact that they can watch TV, sleep in bed, sit on a couch, uh, make dinner, and it's, it's a locked-down sort of cabin but they get to have that 72 hours every two months. And, uh, as long as he doesn't is, kill her in those 72 hours, that, yeah. that looks good. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a good thing. He doesn't put her head in the, in the, the oven. oven. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> well, you know, it's not Hansel and Gretel. Um, yeah. Mrs. Well, Mark over in the corner here. Um, don't they have um, uh, what you would call kitchen passes? Or that he gets to go out for uh, for a period of time, a number of times a year. Was he going to IHOP or something? Well, he gets to go yeah. out. He gets to leave the leave prison for a couple of days. Yeah, these 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 free passes um, they are available for this type of prisoner, and he was approved, I think, originally in 2012 to do this. Um, but then something happened just before he got out on his first day pass. 
something changed, and um, I can't remember what it was. I remember the family, the family telling me. So he, he got um, put off for two years. And then when he's available to do it now, because COVID hit us this year, they're not letting anybody out. Right. So, but he has been approved for these day passes, and they're not um, with a guard. They're totally on his own. Uh, you know, it's like, here you go, and be back at this time, and they let him go on his own, so it's not like he's supervised. You know, they, have the exact, they used to have the exact same thing at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. Right. And uh, they'd let the guy go out to some family's house for dinner. You know, bring a life or a home for dinner. <laughs> and that's basically what it was called. And so the guy goes to, out to dinner and excuses himself to go to the bathroom and doesn't return and takes <laughs> off and, uh, you know, murders somebody else. Yeah. Uh, it's just, well, I mean, it's terrifying for the family. It's terrifying for a lot of the uh, members that lived next door and around the family. They're still alive, and they live in different places, but a lot of them, are scared of him being out in a day pass and running into him in a store or a mall or on the street or um, who knows. And, and it is a terrifying thought. Um, so when COVID is over, uh, he's back up for that and will be allowed to do that because he's been approved. Now, what um, I find kind of also surprising about the situation is that people who murder children are looked at with great disdain by other prisoners. And their life is in danger in most cases, except in Alaska that I know of, where they put <laughs> child murderers in the general population. But say like Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered by another prisoner. Uh, there's, you know, the low man on the totem pole is the, uh, the guy who kills kids. But apparently no one tried to kill him. No, because, you know, remember when it was the big trial and it was all over the news for that in 1983... Um, there was no, no word of this out there. There was it, Everybody thought he had just killed this family to steal all their stuff. And uh, nobody really questioned it at the time. And this is, this is, you know, we know the truth now. Things have come out now. So uh, I don't know. If it, it doesn't seem to be affecting them now. But at the time, if he would have been put away for murdering and raping these two girls, chances are he probably would have been in a, more of a secure place, right? But um, he seems to, to not have been affected by it. Mark has a uh, you, um, you got the opportunity to actually talk to the gentleman. Um, uh, yeah. Did you, did you sense any remorse or regret? No. No, you see, he says he has remorse, and even the last hearing he said he was sorry for the first time uh, to everybody because he had never, ever done that. But you see, the problem is he says, okay, well, he's really sorry, right? And he, he understands how devastating it was in the family, and he says all the right things. But the problem is when he comes to talking about um, the girls and the time with the girls, he's still in this fantasy that um, they liked him and that he, did, he, he didn't do anything wrong. And even to the point where he says in a nonchalant way, about shooting the younger one in the head all because she didn't know what she was doing. She didn't know how to do anything. Man. So he just says it like that, almost like, yeah, I'm justified to shoot her. You know what I mean? He had this non-feeling way of saying, well, she didn't know what she was doing, so I shot her in the head. 
you know, that's the problem I have with it. Yeah. And, uh, Thank, and thankfully, you, know, you have a problem with that. If you didn't have a problem with that, I'd be worried about you. Well, yeah. No, but then he also has this, uh, well, I haven't had fantasies like that in over five years, that I'm cured of it. Uh, they went away years ago, and I don't have that problem anymore. I don't, I, I don't fantasize. And since he's been with his wife, he says he doesn't fantasize about young he likes older women now, so he doesn't fantasize about it. And so he thinks because of that, he should be allowed to get out, live with his wife, and, and move on with life. Um, but there's another problem here. Um, not only did he run over that other guy and kill him for some sort of drug deal, but in two different occasions there, if you read, he tried to kill uh, Officer Ron Germain, a constable for the RCMP, two times. Ooh. And so when you have three like that, and like this constable said to me, listen, there was on all three of those occasions, there was nothing to do with children. He wasn't attempting or, or killing someone to get the kids or because of a fantasy he couldn't control. He was killing just to kill. And he had no problem with that. And that's a, another really... Yeah, that's a real red flag point. right there. Exactly. And, and so even if you believe... Yeah, okay, he doesn't fantasize about little girls anymore, so he's okay. He's not, because he had no problem in three other cases of just of killing or trying to kill someone uh, for just the fact of killing. Yeah, I don't want the guy living by me. I mean... No. And that's kind of how I leave it. I kind of think, well, this, would you, is this someone you really want out in society? You know, and, you know, and he claims, of course, his soul's cleansed and he's found the Lord. I didn't even know the Lord had been arrested. Jesus has been in prison for years. They find him there all the time. Yeah. I don't He's get a it. good so, attorney. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's, it's the same old story of, okay, well, I, I found God. He's forgiven me. I'm a good guy now. I don't, you know, and that sort of thing. And it's like, well, even if all of that was true uh, in your mind and in your heart, that you believed all of that stuff. Um, is twenty is is this enough punishment for someone that's done such, uh, you know, such a terrible thing? Uh, it just I, I don't think it's enough. I don't think if we're not killing these types of people uh, because we're supposed to be a society that doesn't kill our prisoners, he still he he just he has to be housed. He can't be. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's like if he had a contagious disease, you know. Yeah. If he was yeah. typhoid Mary or something, I mean, you don't. Yeah. You don't let him. And we can't fix him. We can't fix him. We're not capable of fixing him. And, and he's done it. Uh, you know, these people, are like our cousins and the family, all these people are still in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. So they're all still relatively young, and they've got some life to live. And uh, he doesn't deserve to be out with them, you know? Now, it's a matter of, of protecting others from him and protecting him from putting any more heinous, murderous crimes on his soul or his prison record or his resume. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible situation. The whole, the whole parole system, and, and of course, like in Canada, just like in the U.S., the parole systems, they, they look at it as successful when they're getting people out in society. They well, look yeah, at if they're... Rehabilitation. If, well, I mean, even... Uh, What's his name? Berkowitz, uh, son of Sam. You know, the guy who first yeah. believed his, his dog was telling him to kill people. He's completely changed. And they probably could let Berkowitz out and he'd never hurt anybody. 
But they don't. They don't let him yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's it's it, it just beyond. I I just think that it's crazy to do that. And and the the reoccurrence, you know, the rate of people that they let out that have committed murder was almost as high. It's almost thirty percent. Um, it's just it's just not. I don't think it's a good thing. I, I, we just need to put these people away. For, you know, they they just need to live. That's fine if you want them to live, but they 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 don't deserve to be out. They don't. They shouldn't be with your neighbors. You know, you don't want him living next door. You don't want him working at the Home Depot down the road. That you no, not if he has to. no problem killing people for no reason. Yeah, I just, I just don't agree with it. So I think that was, that's the main point of the book for me, um, which was just... Now, you do mention in the book, you use the term, he did things with these girls that are unprintable. Right. We're right, not in print <laughs> right now. We're having a conversation. Can you tell us what he did that was unprintable? Um, and no. Um, the, the reason I don't get it into it, and I didn't put it in the book, and that was a really hard part, <clears throat> because there's so much of the family that's still alive, mm -hmm. and it's still way too sensitive. And, and, and to talk about what he was doing to them um, and the family that's around... Um, it's just, it's way too hard. And then to go even doing the shows, like I'm going to be doing some news tele television shows in Canada here. And um, I, I don't, I don't want to start talking about those kind of details because it's, 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 it's just too painful. Yeah, it's interesting, um, interesting to me and probably to our audience as well, the different responses or reactions families have to that type of thing. Uh, brings yeah. to mind the story of Roxanne Dahl who was uh, seven years old, was kidnapped, raped, and murdered by Richard Matthew Clark. And the family wanted, in the book, which I did, to tell all the horrible things. And the, the most horrible pictures that I would, never would have put in the book, they wanted in the book. They wanted people to know what had happened to their daughter. And for some reason, that was cathartic for them or helpful for them, for people to know just how severe it was. It was shocking to me, surprising to me. They said, no, we want people to know what happened to her. Yeah. Uh, that, that was on my mind, and what I had done is, um, uh, you know, some of the manuscript ahead of time I'd sent to family members and to the officers I'd worked with and, and said, okay, well, you know, go over this. Tell me what you think you know let's talk about this and and it i kind of got a mixed response from when the details in there and some of those things that he was doing to them um um some some of them couldn't handle it yeah and and some could like you know some of the responses were nothing i haven't heard before i already know you know and they were also the ones in the family that said they wish they could kill him they well, yeah. wish they could bring a gun into Pearl Hearing and shoot him. So People have tried were, that sort of thing. Yeah, so you see, you had, I had kind of two mixed reactions, and, I, and, I, and it took me, this was a real stressful thing. It took me a little while to kind of go, well, um, I, think, I think I have to think about the girls, and at this point, uh, people, you know, <clears throat> you don't really need to know. No. 
about these really gross details. You know, you hear about how he's nonchalant. It's like, you know, the one didn't know what she was doing, so he got tired of basically slapping her around and forcing her, so he shoots her. So you can just imagine he didn't have uh, a whole lot of um, care in the handling of these kids. And the delusion that he had that they thought he was just wonderful is is such an extreme way of him dealing with the reality of the situation, which he didn't want to deal with the reality of it, obviously. Exactly, and I think that's sort of why the stories vary as well, uh, as he tells them and who he's telling them to, and as time goes by, because he wants to see himself in a certain light, and, and so he has to tell it in order to present himself that way, and it changes depending on what he wants. If he can BS himself to the point yeah. where he convinces himself that two kids who just saw their parents and grandparents murdered in front of them and then are sexually assaulted think he's great and really admire him, he could justify anything. He could yeah. kill your next-door neighbor, you know, uh, and say, oh, yeah, that neighbor just thought I was wonderful. Good way for me to kill him. Uh, yeah, he, he wanted me to. He was... Begging me to, yeah. I, you know, I, I, yeah, and it's just like he's just not trustworthy mentally. There's a, just there's no reason for him to be out, and um, uh, I think the family's really worried. Um, and the parole hearings, right? You know, they're not even allowed to face them here uh, in the parole hearings, eh? Say that again. Well, you know, so he will sit at a table with his wife and a, and a minister. Um, and they're going to be facing the three parole board members. But the family and all the people that write impact statements and all that, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to face them. Ooh. They're in the sidelines. They're watching, like, as an audience. So, Well, here we do it uh, differently. And uh, yeah, it is, yeah. it's very controversial. And I have been to, uh, for example, and went to Alaska for the sentencing of uh, Smiley, uh, Chile, and Lizard Gustafson, who had murdered a kid and then sent a mail bomb to try to kill someone who testified against him. And the woman who survived, her husband was blown to bits, her face melted and everything else, and she gave her victim impact statement at their sentencing. And there's some people who say, no, that shouldn't happen, because then you want to get into this thing of retribution. Not just legal punishment, but you want vengeance against this, these people. And vengeance cannot be a motive in sentencing. And so there's a real debate about the wisdom of these, you know, people getting say, you did this horrible thing, you brought an SOB. That that's going to influence the sentencing of the judge. You know, the emotion of crossing yeah. over. That's from- very interesting, Burrell, because they have the same problem with the parole board in Canada. Really? If, you, if someone comes up parole, uh, you know, <clears throat> interested parties can submit statements to the to the parole board for consideration as they look at parole, but they often reject them because they're too harsh. True. Too harsh. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, and I, I I put one in that was rejected actually, just to show you that it's not really that harsh, and. Um, it's just you know in Canada I find that they're almost too too nice and they're trying to be too civilized and polite to these 
so that there's a system to the prisoners and stuff like that. And, and I, I understand it, but I think that um, it doesn't give the family a feeling of completion, you know? Um, like, you know, to not be able to, to have to end up submitting a impact statement a, a dozen times just to get it right, and it, it's so watered down by then, you can't even face the, the, the person you're talking about, and they look at it, you don't get to read it out. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the families of the victims feel like they're getting their voices heard. Yeah, and the families of the victims, of course, are all going emotionally cross over into that line of retribution rather right. than simply legal punishment or protection of the community by locking these people up, which is the primary consideration, the safety of society in general. Not, oh, we got to be really horrible to this person because they did this horrible thing. It's, we don't want this to happen again. You know, we're going to protect the community by keeping this person locked up. You know, separated from society. Like I said, well, I was there in person when the victim gave their victim impact statement, and that was a horrifying experience, no matter how you looked at it. Here was this woman who'd been horribly disfigured, her stepson murdered, uh, you know, her stepson uh, not murdered, attempted murder, her husband murdered, and she stood there in the courtroom and looked right at these two guys and just told them what she thought of them, which was not positive in the least. And they laughed. They laughed at her. Yeah. And, I mean, that was just bone-chilling and disgusting. You know, so, I mean, the whole argument on whether there should be that confrontation in the courtroom where the victim gets to vent their spleen and all their anger and you know, and, and the person just looked at him and laughed. Yeah. And, and the hard thing, too, um, the Canadian media can't really report on most of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's considered a contempt of court, so you can't, you can't do it the same way as in, in the States. You can't Nancy Grace people, you know? No, you can't have uh, trial by talk show in Canada either. Right. So that's kind of, you're, you're kind of... A book like this is kind of the only way you could read and kind of go, oh, I didn't realize that about parole. Because if you haven't been in to the system yourself and you haven't gone to one of these things, you're not going to know because you're never going to see it on the news. Um, you'll see American stuff, but, you know, it's, it's a different country in a different way. But, yeah, I almost um, wish there could be some sort of a merger, a compromise between these two approaches. Because in, in, oh, yeah. in the USA, they get carried away. I was talking to one prosecutor was watching Nancy Grace's show and she was talking about the blood that was in the vehicle and he's screaming at the TV, there was no blood in the vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is the prosecutor. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he's no. screaming at the TV. Uh, we do this trial no. by talk show it's just uh, that I'm not in yeah, favor of, which is why we we won't do it. Uh, yeah. In fact, there's no. a uh, if, if people are interested in this topic, if you go to burlbear.net which is my website, my, uh, my blog post this week is a statement from the FBI complaining about talking heads on true crime talk shows uh, and how it can just totally screw things up that people get ideas about the cases that aren't true uh, and reach judgments before you could even have a non-tainted jury pool. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's gone too far. There's there, there's like so many crime podcasts and people uh, get all their information off the internet, and it's so unreliable. But they uh, promote a lot of stuff that they're without doing any real investigation, you know. So uh, now, everyone wants to be Nancy Grace. So, uh, Alan, over the over the years, we've talked about uh, on this show, your show, uh, Dan's show. Some truly horrific crimes, and even even though for the family this was horrible, it's not it's not on um, you know in in the same area as um, say Dahmer or some of the other you know mass killers. Well, what about this particular case disturbs you so much? Oh, um. I think that I think that probably the power, powerless that um, the family feels. Um, I think just just dealing with people that um, were part of the family and survived. That um, uh, even today, years later, they're still very emotional, and it stayed it stayed with them the whole time. And and with the way the justice system works. We don't let them move on, um, you know. Uh, it just keeps going and going, and they have to go back and relive it and relive it, and uh, it doesn't end. And I think that was probably the most disturbing thing. I mean, other than the actual assault, of course, but um, and that sort of uh, what's what drew me to the case as well, because um, there was so many people that wanted something done and and uh, needed a voice, and I uh, thought this is perfect. They're all in, and they all wanted to be on board for the book, so I was like, let's do it. It's a very difficult situation. I wish there's a way of melding the Canadian approach and the American approach somewhere, a a happy medium. I'm sure you've read Dan Zapansky's book, The Trophy Kill, The Show We Dance Murders, uh, which is... very upsetting book. It's a great book, but I mean, there was a guy, whatever his name was, Treehouse, whatever his name was, who wanted, I mean, his whole motivation was he wanted to be known as the most sick, perverse, disgusting murderer in Canadian history. And kills was one person, but what he does to the body is disgusting. And, And he's gloating over it. Oh, look how sick I am. Look how perverse I am. And he's going, God, there's something in the water yeah. up there. <laughs> uh, no, he was he was he was uh, American. <laughs> oh, fine. That, that, that explains it. <laughs> yeah, we have lots of. No, actually, you're here. right. But I think that the Canadian side is underpoliced and almost too light, and the American side is overpoliced and overly done. And I think somewhere in the middle would be best, all the way around, from policing to. Um, to justice and courts and everything. I, I just sort of see there. Well, it's a fascinating case, a fascinating book, Murder Times Six by Alan R. Warren. Read it, buy it, it believe. believe it. The Baha'i Faith, good deeds, nice people, and a history of being persecuted, abused, and insulted. Let's face it, not everybody appreciates the teachings of the Baha'i Faith. The Baha'i Faith encourages racial unity and interracial harmony, so racists don't like it. The Baha'i Faith upholds the equality of women, so sexists don't like it. The Baha'i Faith proclaims the harmony of science and religion, 
So these superstitious don't like it. And because the Baha'i faith teaches that tolerance and love are the very foundations of a healthy community, extremist fanatics don't like it. So if you're a racist, sexist, superstitious fanatic, chances are you won't like the Baha'is at all. But if you have an open mind and a kind heart, hey, call us. For more information on the Baha'i faith, simply look in the phone book under Baha'i, B-A-H-A apostrophe I. Thank you.